0: We hope you enjoy this podcast.
1: This week on P.A. Books, the author of Louis I. Kahn, Architect, Charles Daggett.
0: Charles Daggett, author of Louis I. Kahn, Architect, You say in your book that some colleagues and students of Louis I. Kahn, including myself, might suggest that he ranks among such giants as Michelangelo, Leonardo da Vinci, Picasso, Beethoven, Newton, and even Einstein. Now, why isn't he more famous if he ranks up there with them?
1: Uh, Louis Kahn was probably famous to all of us as architects, more so than the general public. The interesting thing about him is that he was, he was an educator. He didn't want to be an educator, but he became an educator. And his um, genius uh, was revealed through his education. So he wasn't really connected to the public. But the academic community of architects, <clears throat> they were all practitioners, knew him. And what happened was that people began to hear about him through his teachings and then began to hire him for buildings and he did world-famous buildings. He did the Salk Center at uh, La Jolla, California uh, with Jonas Salk. Uh, he did uh, the Kimball Art Museum in Fort Worth, Texas. He designed the capital of Bangladesh and he designed the entire city, uh, Dhaka. Uh, and he was chosen because of his worldwide reputation amongst architects, but he was not known amongst the general public. When I was a partner of my firm, I would often say that the architects hired us more often than anybody else. Because we did work for colleges and universities and often it was the university architect who got us. Because they knew about us through the architectural community. The public knew less about us in the same way. Now, the guys that were the popularists, Ailey, or Aero Saarinen and Frank Lloyd Wright, they went out of their way to make themselves public, and uh, Khan did not. Khan was just uh, doing his teaching, doing his architecture, and people found him. So that's, that's why people don't know him as the Einstein or the Michelangelo, but if you met him in person, or you had contact with him as a student, you immediately saw the genius of this particular guy.
0: Well, you said he didn't want to be a teacher, so how did he end up being a teacher?
1: Um, It was the Depression, uh, very hard to find work. Um, He got involved in a number of causes about low-cost housing when he was a young man. Uh, Again, his reputation kind of preceded him. He was taught himself by Paul Cray of Philadelphia, who was a great professor, uh, George Howe, who did the PSF's building in Philadelphia, Howe and the Scots, became dean of Yale and knew of him through Penn and through Paul Cray. Got him to teach at Yale. Uh, he reluctantly went and taught because he didn't have any money. And there weren't any commissions during the wartime and the, not that, he just began to get commissions after the war. So he fell into teaching, even though he never thought of himself as a teacher. Uh, And I think Nathaniel Kahn alludes to that, too, is that um, originally he never thought of himself as a teacher, and he fell into teaching because people asked him to come teach. So he finally did.
0: When someone's coming along and they're a budding architectural genius, how do they get noticed that that they have some ability beyond your run-of-the-mill architecture student?
1: Well, Lou, uh, and I call him Lou, uh, most of the people that I know would familiarly call him Lou versus Louis Kahn, um, was a prodigy when he was a very young man. Uh, he went to, I believe, at Central High School in mm-hmm. Philadelphia, uh, which was the premier, like a, almost like a charter school now. It was the premier uh, Philadelphia high school. If you got into Central, you were uh, cut above to begin with. He was known for his drawing ability, even as a youngster. Um, The other thing that stands out about him as a youngster was that he was a great pianist. And he really debated as to whether he wanted to be a pianist or an architect. And he had a great uh, teacher when he was at Central High School that taught him the history of architecture and he fell in love with architecture and that's what influenced him to become an architect. Um, He got a scholarship, went to Penn. The family had no money. Uh, Went to Penn, studied under Paul Cray and at Penn people were kind of, whoa, look at this guy. You know, and then immediately after he graduated from Penn he became the supervising architect of the Centennial for the city. Somebody at Penn said, "You know this guy's good, <laughs> so when they were looking for an architect to help them out on the Sussex centennial, they got lucan
0: What is it about uh, someone like that that you notice that w- what sets him apart from other
1: oh projects? gosh um well, for one, he could draw, and he was a brilliant um, uh, illustrator his His drawings are like paintings um and they were they were Uh, unusual in their composition. They were very contemporary. Um, He did a lot of drawings and sketches in Europe. Uh, He got a chance to go to during the 30s. In fact, my father went to Europe in the 30s. He was an architect as well. Almost all the architects went in the 30s because there was no work. And they had accumulated a little bit of money through the 20s to so the booming days. So, okay, I'm going to go do the world tour because I haven't got anything to do. <laughs> so Lou went to Europe and started sketching and so on and brought those sketches back. They were exhibited at the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts. People were noticing this man in his early years, uh, but noticing him in the academic world not, um, and, and in the architectural world, not in the public world.
0: Did he grow up in Philadelphia?
1: Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, and he very influenced by Frank Furness, the architect. Uh, I know, you know, uh, I walked into the Furness Library when it was under renovation in the no- early 90s and there's dust all over and the light is coming streaming through the arched windows and stuff and I just stood in that room and said, oh my goodness, Lou was here. He knew that room. <laughs> All of Lou's arches that he created in India and so forth all come out of that room. And He he taught in that building. He loved that building, and he wouldn't go into the, the architectural building at Penn because he didn't do it, for one. and He was very disappointed that he was not commissioned to do that building. And number two, it was a pretty horrible building. They're trying to renovate it now after 35, 40 years um, to kind of fix it up. Um, it, it's a, it's an unfortunate, uh, hopeless, brutal, modern building. And, um, uh, anyway, so Lou was a Philadelphian through and through, uh, but he was also inspired by the architects of Philadelphia. Did and you, then he worked for George Howe, who did the PSF's building, one of the first modern office buildings in the world.
0: Well, I want to ask you about that, and it's a little bit of a side, sure. sidebar, but the PSF's building looks sort of... Up and square and black and symmetrical, and why is it that architects point to that building as being so such a
1: well? You have to look m- at You have to look at the buildings that were being built in the 20s, mostly the tall buildings in New York. <clears throat> the Chrysler Building is the only standout building in New York. The Empire State Building doesn't hold a candle to the Chrysler Building. In terms of what? The Chrysler, well, in terms of just its elegance, its style, its, its uh, expressive. I mean, it was trying to express the automobile. It did a great job doing it. Um, uh, but I, I write about that in another book that may come out so, sooner or later about the history of American architecture. But the Chrysler Building and the PSFS Building were standalone landmark buildings. And they weren't replicated because the Depression came and by the time American architecture evolved uh... after the war it was on a whole new direction of the international style and the glass boxes and so on Lou in fact um, uh... very much revolted against that he thought it was uh... very cold and very inhuman and he was looking for another kind of an architecture uh... the PSF's building and the Chrysler building are two landmark high buildings in America um, that really stand out on their own. There's nothing like them, and that's that's one of the reasons why architects look at it as the the premier modern building of the of the century. Actually,
0: you say that that uh, Louis Kahn w- really liked uh, the the cathedral at Chartres in France. Yeah, can you look at his buildings that he built and see where the influence <laughs> shows up?
1: Uh, not the cathedral, of Chartres. No. Um, uh, what I see there and, and what he tried to teach us was that the, if you go back to the beginnings of everything start fresh. He always said I was always looking for the first book because I never found the first book that revealed everything to me. I knew he read books obviously but um, he, he was searching for a new architecture. He didn't like where architecture was going in the international style and the all-glass buildings. Of um, He and Mies van der Rohe uh, were not eye-to-eye. Uh, the Seagram building in New York is the epitome of the, in quote, international style architecture. Uh, Kahn was searching for an architecture that was uh, more basic, more, um, that grows out of sort of the fundamental desire of man to build something. Uh, He talks about, uh, and I talk about it in his book, um, he talks about the essence of man as being the will to be to create. You see, we don't exist if we don't create things. Um, We're doing this TV program right now. You're involved in the creation of some uh, thing that is going out to the people to help them understand things, so you're creating something right in a way it's a work of art. Um, you didn't know that you were an artist <laughs> <laughs> we all are you see I mean you you plan a garden you you spruce up your house, you paint it, you do whatever you do you're an artist you just don't know it and Lou said that he was looking for what that creative spirit could evolve. So Chart is a whole brand new architecture that grows out of the ground. And the expression of Chart, the thing that really is quite, what he reveled in was the fact that that building is rough and tough and comes out of the ground saying, look at me, I can do it. And the same thing with Paestum, which is, uh, I make reference to that. Paestum is long before the Parthenon, but is the, beginning idea of the Parthenon. And he loved that building because it was not the Parthenon. It was big and clumsy and kind of growing out of the ground just like Sharp was.
0: Well, in that vein, you, you have a relate a story in here where one of his students asks him about falling water and what he thought of it. Well, it was me. Oh, it was you. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) Angrily, with almost a shout of pain in his high voice, he continued, do you think you can make a rock a window mullion? A rock is made from the stars and he makes it into a window frame. And he also talks about how do you think the rocks feel that they've been drilled into? How does it feel now that the tree feel that it has
1: a beam curling around it? Uh,
0: are there times you, you sat and listened to him and thought, what is he talking about?
1: Uh, no, no, I think we knew exactly what he was talking about. Um, what he was criticizing there and, and the gist of the story is uh, that I, I happened to be um, a student that transversed two years. I came in December or January of a year and then I did the fall. So I was an oddball student to begin with. I have always an oddball student. But anyway, um, so in September, when I came back to his studio, I didn't know that I was a celebrity. And people are talking about me, and, you know, he's he's done a whole semester, right? I mean, my God, this guy. Oh, you were the veteran. I'm the hero. (laughs) Yeah, I'm the veteran, right? So uh, Lou starts the class. I figured we're just going to get the problem, and I can go home and And no, Lou comes into the room, and all the forty students are arrayed, and he asks the students, "What have you been thinking about all summer?" and I thought, "Oh my God <laughs> i don 't know what i 've been thinking about anyway, I asked them about falling water uh, and to ask Lou a question uh, was uh, another no no i i said i 've been to falling water and so forth, and i 've been in the cathedrals of Europe." When I crossed the threshold of falling water, I thought perhaps I had stepped into the cathedral of houses. What do you think? Well, the class went dead silent. And Lou sat there and with it, you know, falling water, falling water. Yes. How does the stream feel now that it has a roof? I was dead. I was destroyed in a sentence, <laughs> and he went on to criticize the house, saying the things that I write, write about, and then he finally looked up with a great, and he, this is the gist of some of the stories in the book, he loved to pull the rug f- out from under you, and he looked with a great twinkle in his eye, he looked at me dead ahead, and he said, but you know what? He talked with a very high voice. It's pretty damn good, isn't it? And the whole class went, oh my God. <laughs> he saved. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the, the, the sort of moral of that story, and the, it's actually the story that it's good that you focus on that one because it's the story that got the book started. Uh, the moral of that story is uh, if you th- even think that you're that good and you're asked about somebody else who's that good. So what does Salk think of Albert Einstein or whatever? Um, you have the right to criticize but recognize that it's good. You may not leave that alone. You have to then come back and say, yeah, but it's good.
0: Did he feel competitive with the other architects? Oh, of
1: course. Of course he did. Um, but he, you know, I think he admired them all for, for who they were. Uh, he took lessons from them. I mean, he, he certainly was the great, um, a great theatrical architect, and so was Franklin Wright. Um, he, what do you mean, theatrical architect? Well, he, he like Andy Warhol or some of these, uh, uh, there was an aura of, uh, I'm the creative genius, uh, that um, uh, he was able to somehow create. In the, in the story about the f- falling water, he comes into the room. As I say, he was, he was a great um, theatrical personality. He sits at the table. He's got this ruffled white hair and a and a bow tie that's sort of semi... Um, uh, I mean, all of this was constructed. Uh, it was semi-loosely tied. Um, and he looked like he had slept in his suit for 24 hours, which he probably had.
0: You mean it was calculated yeah, to I p- think so. pre- present an Absolutely.
1: image? Absolutely. Uh, it was an image. Uh, and he comes into the studio. He's got uh, Robert lerick on one side and Norman Rice on the other. They, all three of them taught the studio, but Lou was the lead. He sits in the center of the room, on axis, of course, and all 40 students are arrayed around the table. They've come from all over the world to hear the great master. He sits there, and he just ever so slowly feels the texture of the oak table. For five minutes, nothing is said. And you can imagine the tension in that room. I mean, I've come from all what's happening? <laughs> and he's just And then he looks up and he says, "You there. What have you been thinking about all summer?" Well, the room, you know, the, the gasp in that room was just absolutely stunning <laughs> that was so rehearsed and so <laughs> uh, he knew exactly what he was doing and I think uh, he, he told a story which I talk about in terms of a cost estimate of a project that he had and he uh, was in, in uh, Fort Wayne, Indiana and, and he was commissioned to do an art center So he does this elaborate plan of a complex of buildings, and he presents it to the clients, and they're all the movers and shakers of Fort Wayne, Indiana. And after they finish it, they say, you know, that's really wonderful, your poetry and so on. How much is it going to cost? And this is in 1960s dollars. $25 million. And uh, they... They asked him to step out of the room, and they spent, and he tells this story, they spent a couple hours, and they asked him to come back, and they said, Mr. Khan, we don't have $25 million, what can you do for less? So he then explains to them what he can do for less, and so on, and and, um, he ends up presenting, I forget what the end result was, but he ends up presenting them and telling them it's, it'll cost ten million dollars and they approved it. And he came back to the studio and told that story and he said, I knew they wanted to spend two million. So I told them twenty five to get the ten. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean he was he was an orchestrator.
0: Well with the reputation he had, what was it that it took that it took for him to accept a commission?
1: That's a very good question. Um, his first commission was the Yale Art Gallery um, and uh, I think he actually I'm not sure about this but I think he there was competition for that project and he ended up getting it Um, I'm not sure exactly what it took him I mean, you got to remember that it was in the 50s he's desperate for a project and all of a sudden this commission comes along that is really juicy I mean it's the Yale Art Gallery and uh, I think that one was an easy acceptance. I think others, he agonized about whether or not he would want to do, he did some work for some developers, which never got built. He did a lot of unbilled work. Um, I think he agonized about those kinds of commissions. Uh, he certainly didn't agonize much about the Salk. He, he and Salk got along almost immediately. Um, and uh, he created an incredible complex out there. Where is that? In La Jolla, California. Um, And I talk a lot about it in the book uh, about what he did there. And it's one of his landmark buildings that makes him one of the geniuses that I talk about. Um, But uh, I I don't really know too much of the history of how he accepted or rejected commissions. I know that he did, but... Did he do private homes at all? He did a lot, yeah. There's a book that uh, Bill, you may want to be interviewing him in another few months. Bill Whitaker, I've worked very closely with, is the head of the archives at Penn, which are the Lucan archives. And he's written a book on Lou's houses, which is really a, a terrific addition to the number of books that have been written about Lou. Uh, and you you uh, named the book Louis Kahn Architect. There are plenty of Louis Kahn Architect books. This is Louis Kahn Architect, Remembering the Man and Those Who Surrounded Him. And Nathaniel Kahn points out in the in the foreword, this is a book about Lou Kahn as a teacher, not as an architect. And what I wanted to do in the book was, uh, it, it, people are some people will be familiar with the movie My Architect that Nathaniel wrote. Uh, Nathaniel was Lou Khan's son. Um, Lou died when Nathaniel was 11, didn't really know him that much, searched for him and discovered his father through his buildings and made this wonderful movie which was um, nominated for an Academy Award. Uh, Nathaniel pointed out that this is really the first book about Lou as a teacher. And the reason I wanted to get this book published was because I wanted to show people who the man was, not as an architect, but as a human being and as a teacher and somebody that you could relate to. Uh, Nathaniel, he'll debate the fact that I make the statement because he already told me so. But Nathaniel left him on a very high pedestal. I wanted him to bring him to Earth, like my story about falling water, about the fact that he loved to trick you. He, he, he loved to pull the, the wool over you. Um, he, he enjoyed that kind of back and forth. People don't know him for that. They just know him as this great architect. They don't know him as a human being. That, there's one story that I have that wasn't in the book, which just relates how human he really was. I was walking down the street, Walnut Street was where his office was. And I had my new brand new office in, on Walnut Street. And I was walking down the street and Lucan is walking up the street, and he, and I'm carrying a cup of coffee. And first of all, he says to me, "Daggett, you've started your own office." Now, for him to know my name, I met him for one year, for a couple of hours, uh, two times a week, in a class of forty. Now, you would wonder whether he would ever know anybody's name, right? I mean, he's busy with commissions all over the world. Why would he know this student's name? He says, Daggett, you've started your own office. I said, yes, I have. And he said, by the way, I think you're doing good work, which sort of floored me. He said, but you have terrible coffee. I said, what? <laughs> he said, you wouldn't have any good coffee in your office if you didn't have that cup of coffee in your yeah. hand. <laughs> That's the nature of the person.
0: Well, you also tell a story about when you first met him and you were holding a whiskey yes, sour. Yes, I was holding hand. a whiskey
1: sour, yes, right. <laughs> you want me to relate that story? Yeah, that please. Was, um, my father was an architect. My grandfather was an architect. All my uncles were architects. My cousins are all architects. I'm the last of the Daggett generation in Philadelphia. My grandfather did St. Francis de Sales Church out in West Philadelphia, the big white dome out there. Um, And I think that Lou knew of my grandfather's work and so forth. Uh, So maybe it's not an accident that he might know my name. Uh, But, you know, uh, with all the students he had, anyway. Um, uh, The first time I met Lou Kahn, I was 17 years old. Uh, I had just graduated from high school, and my father had me working in his office. He knew that I wanted to be an architect. My father tried to talk me out of being an architect, but anyway, that's a, another story. But uh, He brought me into the office. I knew nothing about drawing. I knew nothing about architecture, and there were a bunch of people in the office that were indoctrinating me about architecture and so forth, and so I began to learn a few things about architecture while I'm there. And it's the year of, it's 1961, it's the year of the AIA National Convention in Philadelphia. And uh, there's a very famous movie of Ed Bacon and I.M. Pei and Vincent Kling redesigning the city of Philadelphia in the concourse. There's a drawing on the wall. And they have this movie. um, And um, it was a wonderful movie about the future of Philadelphia. And um, so to celebrate that, they have a reception. For the AI National Convention in one of the sunken gardens that Ed Bacon created in the concourse, and my father comes to me at what, four o'clock in the afternoon and says, "There's a reception this afternoon as part of the convention. Would you like to go?" Well, I'm a 17-year-old. I don't have a date that night, you know. Sure, Dad. You know, um, I'll go with you. Fine. So he and I walk over to the con- to the to the concourse and. And we're standing around with a lot of architects, I have no clue who they are. And so the only person in the whole space that I know is my father. And we're standing, and my father buys me a whiskey sour. In those days, people were a little more, more loose about um, if it's supervised drinking anyway. So I have a whiskey sour in my hand. It's the only thing that I could tolerate. Uh, you know The rest of the stuff tasted pretty awful to me. Um, so I'm standing there and Lou Kahn looks, I mean, uh, Dad looks around the room and Lou Kahn is there and he said, would you like to meet Lou Kahn? Did you know who he was then? Uh, not really. I had heard what of name? him, uh, you know, only peripherally. Sure, Dad, you know, I guess, is one of your friends. Well, he wasn't a friend. He, uh, Lou, Lou had not really not much contact with my father. So dad comes over to Lukan, and my father, of course, is a Penn graduate, and I've just been enrolled at Penn in the architecture program, and he's an architect. So he's prouder than a peacock. <clears throat> he's got this son going to go to Penn. <laughs> so he says, I'd like to introduce you to my son, Charles Daggett. He's going to the architecture program. You may run into him later on in the future and so on. So Lukan stands there, and he looks at me. And he looks, and this is pulling the rug out from under you, he looks at me and he he looks me up and down, and he says, young man, what are you drinking? And I said, a whiskey sour. And he says, a whiskey sour, a whiskey sour. You'll never be an architect. He said, architects don't drink whiskey sours, they drink martinis. And he's standing there with a clear liquid in his glass, <laughs> and I'm standing there going, oh "My God, what happened here?" And that was it. And um, a couple of years later, I get uh, into the graduate program at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in the graduate school, and uh, Holmes Perkins, who was who hired Lucan, but not always eye to eye on a lot of different things. And the great thing about, and the genius of Holmes Perkins is he had a faculty that didn't necessarily agree with his architecture. But he got them anyway because they were all incredible architects. So uh, we go to his reception at his house, because he has one for all the incoming students every year. And he has a wonderful house and a wonderful garden. And he's greeting people in the front foyer of the house. And he's standing there with a whiskey sour in his head. (laughs) And I said, oh, my God, I know. (laughs) It took me three years to figure that out. (laughs) He wasn't talking about me. (laughs) Um, Anyway, I since then reverted to martinis. But um, anyway, that was his nature. I mean, that was exactly the joke he was pulling off on me. And, uh, and he knew I would never know for such a long, I mean, you know, how does he know that I ever get into the school? Nor, nor even get to ultimately end up in his studio. So anyway, um, but he was, he, this is a, a book about telling stories like that of Einstein or somebody else that reveal the human side of this, this guy who was an incredible genius. Was it hard to get enrolled in his class? Was oh, it, competitive? it was impossible. How'd you do it? Well, uh, I was quite lucky, in, in and I talk a little bit about it in the book. Um, as I said, my father had this office. Uh, there was a wonderful guy in my father's office named Mark Lombardini, and um, he ended up working for Penn and Drexel and a number of other places and didn't do much in the way of practicing, but he could draw, and he was an incredible draftsman. And uh, he taught me how to draw in my father's office, not a pen. And uh, so when I ended up in the architecture program, which is another kind of a story of how you ever got there, um, you had to get through a a gate. There was a woman by the name of Stasha Nowicki taught basic design. And if she approved of you, you could get to the graduate program. Well, then you had to go through three years of graduate work. And then you could get into the master's program if you were good enough. Well, um, the, the the interesting story behind uh, how I ended up in the master's studio was was life is circumstances, right? I mean the, here I am r- having written this book because of the circumstances. Um, <clears throat> uh, I had won a compet- or, no I had won a fellowship to go to Europe, and um, I took off in when my wife Alice was a, a junior and I took off and went to Europe and we were engaged and I traveled all over Europe with two other guys plus a gorgeous little Chinese woman that was exquisite. And I'm traveling with this woman and two guys in Europe and I'm engaged. And. My wife is not too happy with that arrangement. And needless to say, I'm an architect and I'm oblivious to everything. And I leave the day after classes, the day after my final exams, and come back the day before classes start. Uh, Needless to say, I've gotten uh, interesting letters from her all summer about when can we have our two weeks time (laughs) together and so on. Well, it didn't ever happen. When I got back, there's a competition called the Stewartson Competition uh, at the University of Pennsylvania. And it's uh, uh, enough for six months in Europe. When I got back, I said to myself, you know, I'm never going to have a happy marriage if I don't win this competition. And I did. And that was our honeymoon. I'm still happily married. You can take <laughs> her with you. That <laughs> time. Six months in Europe. Uh, so then, uh, so I've risen up to the top of the class uh, so when I went to Europe, I asked Holmes Perkins, when I come back, can I um, join the master studio? And by that time, because of that competition, and I had done very well as a student, he said, of course. So he enrolled me uh, in, in the master studio. There were very few Penn alumni, graduate students that were allowed to go on to that studio. So that's how I got in. But how many,
0: 40 people in the class, you said? Yeah, about 40. What was it like when you walked in first day of class and sat down and he came in? and You
1: didn't stand, you you stood. It was a studio with all of these upper, these tall desks that nobody really used. We all worked at home mostly. Um, Lou had a desk, but what you did was you pinned up. uh, He had all these rolling boards of homosote. We pinned our drawings on those drawings. What what was it like? You waited in breathless anticipation for him to show up because sometimes he was late. Uh, And he would walk in the room and he had very thick glasses and we'd have our drawings all pinned up and he would just go to the drawing of whatever fancied him for that moment and look at it and start commenting on it. And it was either um, tell me about it because he was intrigued, or something really derogatory, um, and I won't even mention some of the things that he would say about some of the drawings. Um, uh, there, uh, it was, it was, uh, it was. Uh, well, it, the, the interesting thing about it is that this was not like an architecture studio that you had done as an undergraduate. What Lou was looking for was not projects; he was looking for thinking. And he was trying to teach you how to think about architecture. So the drawings and everything else was a tool to get you to think about architecture. Um, I'll relate to you an interesting thing um, in talking about thinking about architecture. I I tell a story in there about drawing on drawing. He drew on one of my drawings. He didn't know it was a drawing. It was so lightly and faintly drawn that he drew on the drawing. Anyway, we were doing a... We we're doing a project called Redesign the Space of the University Not Yet Expressed. And I'm, so, I'm sorry, no, I, the first project was Redesign the University of Pennsylvania, leaving all the buildings in place. So at one point I proposed, and I didn't know what I was going to make it out of, um, a blank square flanked by columns that were all over the, the university, just columns on the walkways. I was thinking of maybe Ephesus. There's a great arcaded, or a column, a columnar uh, road that takes you into the center of the town. Anyway, Lou comes in the studio. He looks at the drawings, and he's, and he, columns, columns, columns. Yes, yeah, columns. And he says, what would you make the columns out of? And hadn't thought about that, so off the top of my head, I'd make them granite. Granite, granite, won't last long enough. Well, granite lasts a 1,000 years, right? <laughs> <laughs> won't last long enough. OK, so he's asking you to think. Um, OK, if it doesn't last long enough, is it good enough to even propose? So now what do you do, right? In the drawing, there was a blank square. And I had no idea what to make that out of, but it was a blank square. So he looked at it a blank square, square place. And he walked on. This fall, I went up to the new Franklin Delano Roosevelt, Four Freedoms Park on Roosevelt Island. Lukan made a square room. And a garden flanked by trees like columns. And the walls of this square room are granite. And I was standing there, I was in the rain, it was a thing that they asked the they invited the alumni to come to, and I was standing there going, Hey Lou, <laughs> you made it out of granite. <laughs> Wasn't good enough for me. <laughs> but the reality of it is, that, you know, Lou recognized. You know, what do you make it of, out of it isn't, it won't last long enough. Lou, Lou always said, one of his, his thoughts were, I have to build buildings under the blue sky. Giotto can paint the sky black, but my buildings have to be under the blue sky. And he would say, an artist can make the wheels of a cannon square. Mine have to be round. So what Lou was talking about was the reality of, okay, the material of granite wasn't good enough, but it's all a half. So he made it out of granite.
0: Did anyone ever disagree with him in class? Uh,
1: not overtly. Uh, you could tell people were unhappy. Um, it, pretty tough to refute. You know, most of the time he, taught in a Socratic method, most of the time he's asking questions, like what do you make it out of and stuff, and if you didn't have the right answer, then he walked away. Um, if you did have the right answer, you know, or if you had an inspirational thought, he spent an hour and a half. So, you know, it was pretty hard to dispute what he's saying. He also spoke in a stream of consciousness. He, he spoke in the studio from 2 o'clock in the afternoon until midnight. And uh, we would walk home to West Philadelphia, I lived there, with a throbbing headache. And I couldn't work on the projects for the whole next day. You you couldn't, because your head was so vibrating from everything that he had said. You were trying to figure out what he was saying. You know, a lot of people, um, uh, you know, I write the book and hopefully I got just a tiny little subsurface fraction of what he was trying to put across. A lot of people walked away and said the guy's nuts. You know, I mean, he, he doesn't know what he's talking about. Well,
0: there's a, <laughs> a there's a a film on a clip of film on uh, YouTube that has him talking to a class and talking about brick and making an arch and mm-hmm. does the brick want to be part of the arch? And you yeah. look at the students all trying to figure out what in the world is he yeah, talking about? Is This guy about?
1: crazy or 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 yeah right? Um, he, right he, he said I he asked the brick with what it wanted to be and the brick said it wanted to be an arch.
0: At times, you thought he was just playing with you?
1: No, I don't think anybody did that. Um, I think they took it seriously that a lot of times they didn't understand it. Uh, Lou would talk to his drawings. Then he'd ask the room, Are you comfortable where you are <laughs> on the plant? And sometimes he would tell us that the room would tell him no. <laughs> um, he was Telling us to get involved with the building that you were doing, to talk to that building as if, you know, he, he you know, the, the whole will to be to create that I, we started this with, the whole, the whole notion is that somehow inside you is this thing to create things. And you have to become very active in how you create it, and um, you need to dialogue with that which you're creating. I mean, I you know, he talked about, the in you know, a very thrilling way, because he was a musician, he talked about uh, the inspiration. He would talk about that a lot, the inspiration to create. And he would talk about um, Beethoven's Fifth Symphony. And he would talk about the, 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 the introductory four notes, da-da-da-da. And it created a whole movement of a symphony, those four notes. And he would talk about the fact that Beethoven must have been talking to those notes, <laughs> how, however way he was talking to it. And you, you, you sit there and kind of think, I guess so. You know, I mean, how do you generate something that powerful without becoming so involved in it, it's alive inside you, right? You know, it's, it's, it's not an abstract. So he talked about the. He personified the brick. He personified the room. He he said that a building is a society of rooms. Well, obviously the rooms are talking to each other. (laughs) We we did a little seminar one time with a whole group of people doing a trying to design a performing arts center. We asked everybody to name themselves a room of the center and then arrange themselves and then we drew it on the floor. And they had to negotiate amongst themselves where it was that they should be relative to this performing arts center. So if you're the entrance and you're the men's room, right, you got to talk to each other and say, well, now, where do you belong? Right. Well, certainly the men's room has to say, I'm sorry, I'll defer to you. You're the entrance. (laughs) You know, you have a little more clout than I do. Um, uh, He would think about buildings in that kind of fashion.
0: Uh, you you say in the book that he uh, taught in parables
1: yeah. yeah he told stories um he, he i I talk about one of the really sort of famous story and uh that, that other people know about in the book about the man who made the first wall um and uh there is a lead up to how that all came about but but uh, he he got into it and he's He said, I want to tell you the story of the man who built the first wall. So he was always going back to the very beginning of things. He said, the man who built the first wall was in the desert. And he needed shade. So he gathered up stones and he built a wall. And the wall was good. And it gave him the shade. And the wall felt good. And this is the personification, right? But the wall was sad because the wall had taken away the view of the mountain. So the man cut a hole in the wall and they got the view of the mountain back, but still had the shade. But now the wall is sadder because the, the, the hole in the wall is unsightly. So the man trims the wall and puts a, a head and a jam and a sill. And the wall is happier because it now has a nice hole in it. But the wall is weak because it has a hole in it. So the man puts buttresses to shore up the wall. And all of a sudden, the walls part and the columns become. And what he's saying is that there's an evolution in architecture that creates the pastem and the columns rise out of the ground because there are no walls anymore. Because you can now hold it up with these pieces without the walls, right? That's a discovery a, and, a, and a, an amazing thing like the wheel. Look, I can do this. I don't need the the wall and I don't need the window. I need the column. So man invents the column to hold up his buildings. Well, he taught in that kind of parable of the man making the wall and the man making the column more than, you know, what are they? So he, he personified these things in order to give them life. You see, if if existence, will, is creation, then everything that we make has a life, right? So it's alive. In your book, you're talking about
0: architecture as a fine art. But how do you, how do you combine the fact that it's a fine art with the fact that you also have to have structural realities about it? it has to stay up in the air and the roof has to not leak. And,
1: and Well, the, that's, the that's why we, in a snobbish kind of a way, as architects, call it the mother of the arts. Because we need to know about everything in a certain way. I mean, we are the Renaissance profession. Uh, In order to do a building, you need to know about chemistry because you need to know that copper and aluminum uh, can react together and create real problems. So you need chemistry. You need physics, obviously, to hold the building up. You need to know about uh, thermodynamics, about winds, and so on and so forth, so all of that. Um, so there's a huge wealth of, of uh, and in, in Lou's case, you need to know theatrics um, and a few other talents as well. You need to draw, you need, you need to know color, you need to know all sorts of different things. You need to know uh, physiognomy, how the body works. You know, what profession draws all of these various disciplines together? to create something um, and sure the artists of the Renaissance were all cutting up cadavers and learning about the human body to paint them but we have to know about the human body and dimension and all of the kinds of things that are necessary to make a door uh, and how the hand operates the door and all the rest of it. So um, yeah, it's a fine art but it's, it's, it's the umbrella art that does all of those kinds of things.
0: Can you explain the phrase, uh, have you thought about Wharton? <laughs>
1: <laughs> uh, well, the gate that we had to get into, you asked about uh, getting into the School of Fine Arts. Um, we had to go through a course called Basic Design. Basic Design was taught by a woman by the name of Stasia Nowicki. She was Polish. She was married to a man who did the a Coliseum in the University of North Carolina, which is spectacular and won the original competition to do Chandigarh, and was killed on the way to Chandigarh. She had been in the Bauhaus. She had studied with Joseph Albers. She had taught with him at, um, I believe he was at Yale, or Harvard. He was at Harvard, I think. Um, Maybe both. But anyway, um, she was way up there in terms of basic design. She had an eye that was spectacular. She could just look at any composition and judge it immediately. You had to get through her as a gate. Well, we would do design projects for her. For instance, you asked me, you know, how did I get in? Uh, She asked us, the first project we did, this is like a little bit like Lou and asking to design the space of the university not yet expressed. She said, design a metal sculpture not using any uh, uh, welded joints. And I want them all mechanical joints expressing motion. You know, as a th- junior in, in college. Say, what? <laughs> <laughs> so I made a piece of sculpture that was a, was, I drilled holes in rods and bolted them all together. And you, actually, in fact, it sort of collapsed when the when uh, we had to present it for the final jury of it. And Bob Engman, who was a friend of mine, he's a sculptor, was on the jury. And he went up to it. It was the first project that he went up to, and he took it apart. And he said, this is fantastic, because you can make it into anything you want. This is not my intention. Anyway, Stasha was there, and she uh, looked at me, and, and uh, I got an A in the project, and I was off and running in her studio. If you did a project that was terrible, which there were a number... She would often say to the student, That's horrible. Have you thought about the Wharton School? And meaning, please go into business school because you're not going to ever be an architect. <laughs> so that's what uh, have you thought about the Wharton School was all about. And there were some architects that did extremely well that went to the Wharton School <laughs> with their advice, I can tell you that. <laughs> with
0: with Louis Kahn, um, could you I mean you have a trained eye, but could the semi-trained eye or the untrained eye look at a dozen different buildings and pick out which ones were his?
1: Uh, that's a pretty interesting question. Um, probably if you came upon it without knowing anything about him, if you came upon the Kimball Art Museum or the Salk Center, I doubt it um. And that's because Lou was always searching for whatever he was searching for. He was, not, he was not looking for a style of architecture. He was looking for architecture. To him, the style of architecture had nothing to do with architecture. He always said, the style is what you, ooh, that's your tie. And style is the polka dots on your tie. It's not even the tie. Uh, so um, I don't think you could recognize his buildings. Now... Uh, having said that, I think you could easily come to the conclusion if you stepped into one of his buildings that this is a special place. Um, I talked about SOC. Uh, we know in America that the uh, for, for people who have ever been there, uh, and it, it been talked about Jefferson's University of Virginia and the lawn, right? The the lawn at the University of Virginia is sacred. It's not a campus, it's the lawn, right? Jefferson made that lawn because he had bought the, 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 the um, Louisiana Purchase and he faced the library and then built two wings of classrooms and they're, they're really dormitories, classrooms, and professors, residences, all mixed together. Anyway, they they cascade down this hill and there is this cascading lawn framed by these buildings. And what's the framing it is you're looking at the Allegheny Mountains and the mysterious, misty, blue ridges of the Allegheny Mountains. And what Jefferson said was, here's the library and here's learning. And if you do all that, that's yours. So, Khan goes to California, in La Jolla, California, on the Palisades above the Pacific. And Kahn always talked about art is the merger of religion and science. So there's the mystical on the one side and there's the rational scientific on the other. You put the two of them together you might get art. So he builds a building of two laboratories science, and a platform that overlooks the Pacific with a little band of water running down the platform, looking at the western sunset and China, and it's almost identical to Jefferson's ideal, and what Lou says is, you see the 21st century, it's all out there. The mystical east. Go look for it. Now, when you stand in the lawn on a morning, a misty morning, and look at that view, chills, to me anyway, uh, run down my spine. And when you stand on the plaza of Salk, you say, This is a sacred place, like the cathedrals, like the mosque. There's something, there's some ingredient here that's beyond you know a building for god's sakes this is not a building this is poetry this is this is the symphony this is you know this is art i'm <laughs> in mean it right that's why it's the mother of all of the arts because we stand in it you know you don't look at it you stand in it and you exist in it and then you have to live in it yeah you have to eat and sleep and everything else right
0: so. uh, now w- this program's seen all across pennsylvania if people are watching this where's the nearest Uh, Louis Kahn building they can go to see? Uh,
1: The one at the University of Pennsylvania is the richest medical research building. He has a building out at Bryn Mawr that most people don't like. It's concrete and slate. Uh, It's the Bryn Mawr dormitories that he built. Um, It's not in the book. Uh, I talk about it a little bit about uh, in one of the stories about concrete, but um, um, in Pennsylvania uh, one of the things that's interesting, he did the symphonic barge in Pittsburgh. I don't know whether it still exists. That's still there. Um, those are probably the only Pennsylvania buildings that are oh, and his houses. And there are there are a number of houses. I was just at the Corman House uh, outside of Philadelphia. There's several. The Eshwick House is a, a remarkable little house in Chestnut Hill. And his that he did
0: his archives are open to the public. Yeah, at, yeah. at Penn. of Pennsylvania. Yeah. What do you see if you go there?
1: Uh, you see his drawings. Uh, you see, you can see some of the buildings. Um, there are various books on his architecture, um, uh, including now going to be this book and Bill Whitaker's book about his houses. Uh, so there's lots of information about him, and it was cr- that was created shortly after his death. Is this your first book? That's my first book. Yeah. What do you think of the process? Uh, I think it was wonderful to talk about. 20 years to get actually um, created. It create It was. It came out of the AI committee on design. I was chairman of that committee, which is a national committee. It's very prestigious. I would get up at, after dinner, after a few brandies, and somebody would say, "I wouldn't get up." Somebody would say, "Charlie, tell one of your con stories." So I would tell a story, and everybody loved the stories, and. One night, there was a guy that came up to me. Uh, his name was Jean-Paul Cariani. He founded the committee, and he he was very French, although he was in America for a long time. But he had a very thick French accent, and he said, "You have to write them down." And I was, what? <laughs> <laughs> and, and he said, "We lose you. We lose your stories." And guilt. Uh, set in about a couple of years later and yeah, okay, and I finally got a computer, you know, we're all non-computer literate, we got the hand-me-downs, but the partners always got the lowest computer, you know, the the ones that we're getting rid of, they went to the partners, but anyway so I had this thing, I could type on it now and stuff, and so I started, well, I'll start writing, so I wrote the book
0: And this is the result Louis Icon architect Charles Daggett, thank you very much Great You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.